Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Welcome back to Tell Me the Story. This week we will be reading through chapter 44 of Genesis, continuing Joseph's story as his brothers have first come to meet him long after they sold him into slavery. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. The first interesting thing to note about these two verses is the word gabia, which is translated to the cup in English. This regal gabia is given to Benjamin, who we have already said is an inherently regal name. Benjamin in Hebrew means the son of the right hand, with the right hand connoting power and succession. There is interesting wordplay between this word gabia and the word for hill in Hebrew, which is vocalized as gibeah although they both are constructed from the same triliteral root. Interestingly, Gibeah is also the name of a location in the Old Testament, and it is particularly associated with the tribe of Benjamin. One story comes from the book of Judges, where a Levite's concubine is viciously raped, murdered, and then dismembered by a group of Benjaminites. This action results in a civil war among the tribes of Israel who nearly wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin altogether. The other association with Gibeah and Benjamin is that this place becomes the first capital of the kingdom of Israel under King Saul, who, of course, is a Benjaminite. He sets his kingdom on a Gibeah, a high place or a hill, so to speak, and his reign is a disaster, as we all know. So this early instance in the text with the regal chalice, the gabia, and the sack of Benjamin is really interesting when you know this literary connection. It is a clever use of foreshadowing that the kingdom will become misplaced in the hands of a descendant of Benjamin. It's also interesting from a storytelling perspective what exactly Joseph is doing here. The last time his brothers came to Egypt, he did something similar by returning their money into their sacks in secret, only for them to discover later in fear that they would be mistaken as thieves of Egypt's riches. The reader should understand in that chapter that Joseph is being somewhat charitable. He doesn't want their money because a part of him seems to feel empathy for their situation despite how they treated him in the past. They are his family, after all. Well, he does the same thing here, but he includes the cup, which we will soon see acts as an identifier Uh, and this entire situation is a little bit less charitable than the former. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? 
Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So this whole section is really interesting to me, because in this instance, the brothers of Joseph are not doing anything wrong. It's not as if they stole the silver cup themselves. It was simply planted there by Joseph. So what is the point of this story in the narrative? I think, in part, it's a prophetic admonition. It's already implicating them, not in something they have already done, but in something that their descendants will do later on in the story. The cup, as I have said earlier, is functioning as the kingship altogether. It is also Joseph's source of divination. While this may seem like bad news, especially when divination in Hebrew comes from the same root as Nechash, the serpent in Genesis, Joseph's divination is actually legitimate in that it comes from God, as we saw in chapters 40 and 41. Therefore, it is God who fills Joseph's regal cup, and therefore it is God's kingdom which is ultimately represented by Joseph. The Israelites, in particular Benjamin, will eventually steal this kingdom away from God for real. So while Joseph is presenting this theft of his gabia as a sin against himself, what he is really doing is prophetically rebuking them for their eventual sin against God. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it, for telling the story of their descendants and prophesying an admonition in advance of the wrongdoing, even if just in a literary sense. I think in context, though, it is providing an interesting look at Joseph's humanity. As I alluded to, he's no longer being charitable, but is divining, pun intended, the circumstances to get his brothers back into Egypt so that he can, as we will soon see, take hold of the one brother he wants, Benjamin. In fact, I think the use of the Nahash Yenachesh wording is actually to clue us into some negative characterization on part of the authors directed at Joseph. Sure, Joseph is a quote-unquote good character insofar as he submits to God's will, but that doesn't free him from the pitfalls of human selfishness, impulsive action, and ego, most of all, all things which God's design can work through. And we will ultimately have three cycles of this type of event, with the last resulting in Israel's entire house coming into Egypt. I'd wager that these three cycles are meant to show the frailty of Joseph's character and prevent us from making him out to be a hero. Again, yes, Joseph is a quote-unquote good character, but not all of his actions are as selfless and perfect as we may want our good character to be. That is our pitfall as we read scripture. We want our good guys to be good, even when the text uses language to paint their actions as bad. Just be like me and assume everyone is bad. What would have been better from a behavioral point of view would have been for Joseph to invite the whole family in and tell them who he was from the get-go lead with forgiveness, and invite his brothers turned enemies into his newfound security from God's provision in Egypt. Share that mercy. Well, instead of that, he has this sort of emotional meltdown over these three cycles of interaction, which finally results in Israel being preserved because God had a hand in all of it. God's only concern here seems to be to preserve Israel through Egypt's prosperity, and that is accomplished through Joseph's God-given authority, but that doesn't mean Joseph is perfect. When the servant overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. 
And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So this section is mostly self-explanatory, but what I want to do is emphasize the importance of Benjamin in this story. It is interesting that he hardly has a personality otherwise. I don't even think he's had any dialogue so far. But his importance isn't in his personality, or in the lack of one, but in how he functions in the narrative. The thing about the biblical story is that there really are no surprises once you get past the Cain and Abel story. I said over a year ago when we covered Genesis 4 that the entire scriptural narrative is an elaborate answer to Cain's rhetorical question about whether or not he is his brother's keeper. The biblical story over and over again answers with an emphatic, yes, you are your brother's keeper. In the next section of this chapter, Judah will recognize this and sacrifice his own preservation for the sake of his younger brother and his father. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. The brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless your youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. It is interesting in a narrative sense that Judah is the one who appeals to Joseph on Benjamin's behalf and even offers to take his place. Is this not in essence what happens later in the biblical epic? 
Judah succeeds Benjamin with the kingship and becomes a servant to empire. This entire chapter is basically a foretelling of the drama between the two kingdoms spawned from the Israelites. It is a sad story where the people initially called by the scriptural God radically disobey his call for them to live like Bedouins in the Syrian desert and instead sell their souls to the Lord of this world, which is marked by regime and futile empires that rise and fall. It is also interesting, as we have said before, that Joseph is acting in a similar manner as Cyrus at the end of the Old Testament. Luckily for the Israelites, both Cyrus and Joseph are benevolent. And this is where the genius of the biblical authors is highlighted. In both cases, the benevolent king is succeeded by a decidedly malevolent king. You run that risk when you enslave yourself to the powers of this world. By the start of the book of Exodus, we have a new pharaoh that did not know Joseph and treats the Israelites harshly. In the historical narrative, Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire and his descendants treated the people of the Levant harshly. The scriptural authors understood the pattern at play here, and they embody the saying, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. The narrative is being flipped on its head in a way. Joseph in this passage has been functionally transitioned into the place of the bad guy, the antagonist of the sons of Israel. He wants his brother Benjamin, but not for his preservation. He wants to possess him and to send the rest of the brothers away back to their father. What's more is that Judah and Joseph seem to be having almost a contrary character development. Joseph was selfless and submissive to the forces around him, but now he has power and is using it to manipulate things according to his own whims, not the genuine benefit of those around him. Judah, on the other hand, was formerly uninterested in actually standing in the way of his brother being harmed. When Joseph is the subject of his brother's conspiracy back in chapter 37, Judah could have stopped it all. He stopped the planned murder, but instead convinces them all to just sell Joseph into slavery because that's so much better, right? Well, Judah has developed in a positive direction since then throughout the story because now he is actually standing in the way of his next youngest brother, Benjamin, from succumbing to that same fate of slavery which he previously caused for Joseph. It's just such great storytelling. There are no heroes in scripture, no absolutely good people. They are just decisions, and those decisions are either made out of love or selfishness. Love, of course, is the scripturally correct motivation, and we simply get a look into this massive story, which is but a vastly complex array of consequences caused by people choosing not love, but selfishness. That is scripture's argumentative proposition that Blaze mentioned earlier. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I loving or selfish? Do I love my neighbor more than myself. See you all next week. He shall be like the tree which is planted by the streams of the waters. Hallelujah. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.